precious God, we ask for your help now as we come to your word. We know and are persuaded that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for equipping your people for every good work that you have called us to do. That includes scripture that is super clear and easy to understand, and that includes scripture that is much, much harder to understand and much less familiar to us. And so I pray that as we embark, Lord, on this book that is challenging and unfamiliar, that you would feed us with the food of your word, that you would equip us to be your people as salt and light in a world that desperately needs to see Jesus. So would you help us now begin on that journey as we go to your word together, we pray. Amen. Amen, friends. There once was a husband and a wife who lived together happily in a beautiful home. This was a home that they were given by a gracious host as a gift at no cost to them. They lived and enjoyed this home where they had everything that they could possibly need. They were happy, enjoying this very good gift together. This went on for a while, but one night, a thief snuck into their home. But this was not the usual kind of thief. You see, he wasn't there to steal something from their home. He wasn't there even to directly hurt or attack them. This thief instead was there to convince them that their gracious host was cheating them. That they deserved something more. Something better. That there was a gain that they didn't have that they should have. And that the way to get it was to show the host by burning it all to the ground. So what did they do? They believed him. They gathered gas cans and they started pouring them all around their home. And they took matches and they lit it and they set the whole place on fire. As you can probably imagine, as they looked out on the charred remains of their home, they realized there was no gain to be had by doing this. There was no gain to be had and not only that, but they had destroyed the gift of their gracious host. What should they do? What's left to do when you're looking out over the ruins that you have made? This is the situation that our first parents found themselves in after they took the good gift of Eden and burned it to the ground. After they sought gain where they ought not, which led to destruction and devastation. As they went from everything under the sun, being very good, all that God had created, we see in Genesis 1, very good. Now, 
After they've burnt it all to the ground, Genesis 3, the ground is cursed because of you. The creation, as Paul says in Romans 8, has been subjected to futility. And our first parents, Adam and Eve, were cast out of the garden. Imagine what they must have felt. Facing for the first time, having to fend for themselves. No longer does the ground just sprout up what they need to survive. They have to work hard for it. For the first time, they're facing toil and trouble and death. How on earth could gardeners who had never seen a weed learn to cultivate the world? How on earth could immortal beings learn to die? How could they live in the ruins of Eden? This is the question that has plagued our first parents and plagued us ever since. And it's a question that the preacher in Ecclesiastes wrestles with deeply. We were created for Eden, but we live in a world that is not Eden. How on earth should we live here? How can we live wisely under the sun in the ruins of our former paradise? The preacher asks and answers these questions. But it's not in the way we would expect. It's not in a neat and tidy way like we see Paul answer some of these questions, for example, in Romans. It's not even in a nice storytelling way like we see these questions answered in the Gospels. See, we're used to voices like that. We're used to reading through Paul's letters or used to hearing the stories of the Gospels. If we dip our foot into the Old Testament, usually it's to hear the stories back there, right? Stories like the Exodus where God delivers his people miraculously from slavery in Egypt or stories like Jonah. We don't really understand what's up with the swallowing by the big fish, but we kind of like the story. Or we might dip into the Proverbs or the Psalms for some inspiration. But beyond that, the voices we hear in Ecclesiastes are wholly foreign to us. Zach Estwine talks about it this way when he compares Ecclesiastes to a crazed man on a street corner. He says he smells like he hasn't bathed, looks like it too. And as we pass by, he won't stop glaring at us and beckoning to us that our lives are built on illusions and that we are all going to die. What a strange message. What a strange voice. Good for a sermon series, no? And yet, friends, this Message, this voice, the preacher's wrestling and the preacher's conclusions is a worthwhile journey because it brings us on this journey to see that through these ruins of Eden, there is a path to lasting gain and to joy that treads through these broken promises and the emptiness that we see in life. So friends, today our goal is to acquaint ourselves with this crazy man named the preacher. To get acquainted with Ecclesiastes as a book. 
to help us hear rightly this message that he has for us, to get our bearings, so to speak. We're going to do that by looking at three things this morning. We're going to look first at the man, the preacher. Then we're going to look at his method. How does he go about trying to search out these questions? And then we're going to look at what is his message. Because the preacher is coming to us with some conclusions. What are those conclusions? How should we think about them? We're just going to scratch the surface today, but hopefully that will orient us then to continue walking through at a plodding pace his message. So first of all, friends, meet the man, Ecclesiastes 1.1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Notice, first of all, that Ecclesiastes 1.1 says the words of the preacher This is not the preacher talking himself, right? We see in verse 2 even, vanity of vanities says the preacher. Your Bible might even have that part in quotes. You see, there's actually two people in the book of Ecclesiastes. There's the preacher, and then there's also what scholars call a frame narrator, or we can just call the narrator, the author, someone who's writing down the words of the preacher, recording his sermon. We see in verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That appears in one other place in Ecclesiastes. Look at, with me at chapter 12, verse 8. Chapter 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. And then, verse 9 of chapter 12. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, etc. You see how it shifts in voice again? We have the narrator coming back. That's why he's called a frame narrator, because he's at the beginning and at the end. Chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 12, verses 9 to 14, are the voice of this narrator. And in between that, we have the preacher and his sermon. Now, preacher is a translation, English translation, for the Hebrew word kohelet. It means preacher or teacher or something along those lines. And so if you have something other than preacher in verse 1 of chapter 1, don't worry too much about it. That's kohelet, but for the sake of ease, we're going to stick with what the ESV says, which is preacher, which is a good translation. This preacher, we see in verse 1, is the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Son of David, king in Jerusalem. We see elsewhere in Ecclesiastes that he is very wise, that he is very rich, and that he's quite old and experienced in life. Does this bring anyone to mind from what you know of the Old Testament stories? It should bring Solomon to mind, right? Solomon, son of David, who asked God for wisdom and was given wisdom beyond any king before him and who acquired much wealth and who lived to an old age and had much life experience. Historically in the church, the identity of the preacher has been affirmed as Solomon. We are not directly told that though. There is some question and some disagreement about whether the preacher is Solomon 
or whether the preacher is another preacher who's preaching kind of in the voice of Solomon, like Solomon would preach, which was common in that day. Either way, the message of the book itself is not too affected for us. I tend to believe that this preacher is Solomon at the end of his long life, looking back and reflecting on it for our benefit, for the benefit of his people. More important than the question of whether this is Solomon or not is the question of how does the preacher and the narrator relate to one another? Because see, there's some disagreement about this too. Some think because of the way the preacher talks, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Later he says, I hated my life. Other places he says, it's better to not even have been born. Because of his pessimism, some view this preacher as a hopeless skeptic. And then they think the narrator is actually correcting the preacher. So they say, you've got this long sermon, and this is all an example of how hopeless it is to try to approach life without God. The preacher does not know God And he is trying to do life without God. And the narrator wants you to see that as a non-example. And then come to the conclusion that's not the path to take. And so at the end of the book, when the narrator says, here's the conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments. He's actually correcting the preacher's thought. That's one way to think about the relationship between the preacher and the narrator. But that would mean we'd have to sit through... 11 chapters of what not to do. And friends, I don't think that's actually what we have to do. I don't think that that is a correct understanding of how the preacher and the narrator relate to one another. You see, the preacher is a skeptic, but he's a godly skeptic. He's not skeptical of the character and nature of God. He's not skeptical of whether God is in control or created the world or ordered it a certain way, or is bringing it to a beautiful end. No, rather, he is skeptical of this world's ability to produce the gain that we long for in our hearts. He is skeptical that this question, what gain is there? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? He's skeptical that this question can really be answered under the sun. I think this is the case because he repeatedly appeals to the fear of God throughout his sermon. He repeatedly remains hopeful that there is some good to be had. And at the end of his sermon, the narrator makes a positive judgment on it. Look at chapter 12, verse 9. Chapter 12, verse 9, the narrator says, besides being wise, notice He believes the preacher is wise. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. Weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The preacher wrote words of truth. The preacher was wise. I think this is a positive assessment of the preacher himself. That the narrator is holding him up and saying, you know what? He spoke rightly. In a similar way to how Job, when he speaks of the Lord giving and the Lord taking away, even though he's being very pessimistic, he's speaking rightly of God. 
So when the preacher then concludes, or excuse me, the narrator then concludes in verse 13 of chapter 12, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. He's not contradicting the preacher. He's summarizing the preacher's conclusions, telling us what to do with them. In light of everything the preacher has just said, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. So friends, that's the approach we will take. It is hard to see that in the preacher's sermon sometimes, but I think the difficulty in seeing that comes from our unfamiliarity with the preacher's method. See, the preacher has a pretty distinct method, but it's not the method we're used to. We're used to the New Testament where we're often given the conclusions by Paul. And then Paul argues for the conclusions and says, here's why that's true. The preacher doesn't do that, though. The preacher actually teaches much more like Jesus often taught, where he starts with a question. He starts with a question in Ecclesiastes 1, 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What does man gain? What the preacher does then is he takes this question and he pursues the answers through observation and experience. This is common in wisdom literature. Pursuing the answers to a question through observation and experience. Notice what the preacher does. Look at 1.13. Ecclesiastes 1.13. The preacher does stuff like this. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. I applied my heart to seek and search out. I thought about it carefully. I ruminated on it. I I reflected on what I'd seen and heard. Or take, for example, chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. The preacher conducts experiments. I'm going to try this and see if it works. Or take, for example, Ecclesiastes 3.16. Ecclesiastes 3.16, the preacher says this. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. The preacher sees over and over and over. You can walk through his sermon and underline all the times he says, I see, I perceived. He's using observation and experience and reflection on that observation and experience to pursue the answer to this question. Friends, this is common in wisdom literature. Now, wisdom literature, you might not know, is a particular category of books of the Old Testament. We have Ecclesiastes. We also have Job. We also have Proverbs. And then we have Song of Songs. Out of those books, which ones have you spent more time in? Probably Proverbs, right? Maybe, maybe Job. Probably not the Ecclesiastes and probably not Song of Songs. I still don't know what that one means. These books are less familiar to us. We see echoes of them in places like Psalms, where there are wisdom poems. And we have a New Testament aberration in the book of James that is written much more like a wisdom book of the Hebrew Bible than it is a letter of Paul. All of these books share in common, though, this method of 
observing and experiencing creation. And they share this method because they share a common assumption. And that's that God has created this world. There is a creator. And that the creator has made this world with some order and structure. The preacher shares this assumption. Listen to Ecclesiastes 12 verse 1. The preacher writes, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you say, I have no pleasure of them. Remember your creator because there is a creator and he has made everything, particularly in Ecclesiastes, time. Time is one way the creator has ordered the universe. Ecclesiastes 3.1, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. See, the preacher shares this assumption that there's a world that's been created and there's an order to this world. Therefore, we can make observations. We can use experience to gain wisdom. This is called relying on natural revelation. What God has revealed about himself in creation. As Paul says in Romans, his invisible attributes, his divine power and nature can be clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So the preacher goes about trying to make observations and trying to use his experiences to gain wisdom, but he runs into a wall. What do you think that wall is? Where do you think the limits are of human observation? God has created us as finite beings. We cannot know everything. We cannot see everything. So the preacher runs up against his own human finiteness. In trying to make these observations. That's why he concludes at the end of chapter 1. In verse 18. In much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge. Increases sorrow. As he tries to discern. The answer to his question. What does man gain from all his toil under the sun. He realizes he is insufficient. To fully answer that question. And so he has to turn somewhere else. And we see him turn over and over in Ecclesiastes to fearing God. That's common in wisdom literature as well. Our finiteness leads us to the fact that we need special revelation to understand God and his ways. And therefore, all wisdom starts with fear of the Lord, right? Proverbs 9 Verse 10, I bet you know it without even turning there. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is where things start. And so the preacher starts here, like all wisdom literature, and works towards the goal of all wisdom literature, which is wisdom. But the thing is, wisdom is also not like we normally think of it in a Western context. Sometimes we think of wisdom as, I need to know what to do in this particular circumstance. Do I do this or do I do this? Do I choose A or do I choose B? That's part of it. But wisdom is so much more to the preacher and wisdom literature in the Old Testament. You see, wisdom is part of the same word family as skill. It's skill in living. Wisdom is skillfully living and wisdom related to God, is skillfully living in God's world. Seeking wisdom is like training for a profession. 
more so than it is trying to decide, should I wear this or should I wear that? It's training for a profession or what we might call in the New Testament discipleship, right? Training for a task that we've been given, being equipped for every good work. Wisdom works in different ways in the Old Testament. In Proverbs, wisdom is more like a textbook. If you're going to school and you're reading in a textbook about different rules and what they say about how things work, you can learn how the world is designed. How to walk in the world based on how it's supposed to work. But Ecclesiastes is more like field experience. Where you go out and try to apply these things and learn all the exceptions to the rules. All the ways things actually work in the world that was created perfect but is broken by sin. Ecclesiastes takes the world as it is and teaches us how to sail in the uncharted waters of life. That's the goal of this wisdom. Is skillfully living under the sun in a world that is perplexing and confusing and and broken by the curse so the preacher's goal in his sermon is to teach us this skillful living to teach us how to live skillfully in the created but cursed world as he pursues this question what gain is there under the sun what advantage does man have he'll say later what's better he'll say later he's trying to drive at this and pursue it But he's coming back to us. He's not just starting his journey. He's coming back to us after having traveled down all these paths. After having explored all these ways that maybe he could find gain. And he comes back with his conclusions. His conclusion is in verse 2 of chapter 1. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. It's not a very positive conclusion, not a very encouraging conclusion. Friends, I think we have to be careful to understand what the preacher is saying here, because we can easily miss it if we don't understand. See, he's saying vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Our English Bibles are translating the Hebrew word hevel, and the Hebrew word hevel occurs almost exclusively in the book of Ecclesiastes. There are a few other places in the wisdom literature where it appears in Job and Psalms. But in Ecclesiastes is where it's primarily found. And it is not entirely clear what the meaning of Hevel is. Your Bible may translate it vanity, if you, especially if you have the ESV or one of the scripture journals. Or if you have a different translation, you might see meaningless. You might see futile. You might see breath or vapor or temporary that reflects the difficulty in translating these terms and that you have to pick an english word to stand in so let's think about these options for a minute we know the preacher says all is hevel what does he mean does he mean that all things in the world are meaningless meaningless all is meaningless if he did then all of what he's saying would be rendered meaningless because all his meaningless would include his own words. And yet throughout his sermon, he argues that one thing is better than the other. Take, for example, chapter 4, verse 13 to 16. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 13 to 16. He says this. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. Yet there was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is meaningless? Surely this also is vanity. Surely this also is fleeting. None of them really fit there. Meaningless does not fit because if it's meaningless, then it's certainly not better for a poor and wise youth. It's not better to be poor and wise than to be old and foolish. Meaningless doesn't quite fit. Some would say that hevel would be better translated fleeting or temporary, emphasizing that life is a vapor and it's gone. If that were the case, though, the preacher could not affirm that some things last. And he does. Take, for example, chapter 4, verse 8. Chapter 4, verse 8. He says this. Actually, chapter 4, verse 7, we'll start in. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. Or again, I saw what was fleeting under the sun. If we translate it that way. One person who has no other, either son or brother... Yet there is no end to all his toil. No end is not fleeting or temporary. No end is lasting a long time. There is no end to his toil, uh, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. This also is fleeting. doesn't quite fit. So if Hevel is not meaningless, and Hevel is not fleeting. And I would put vanity in the category of meaningless or futile. If that's not the best translation for the word hevel, what would be a good way to think about it? Look at chapter 6, verses 11 to 12. Chapter 6, verses 11 to 12 captures well the feeling of hevel. The more words, the more hevel. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his hevel life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Notice that it's not that life is too short to understand. And it's not that life has no meaning and is therefore ununderstandable. It's that life itself under the sun is frustratingly mysterious. Life under the sun is what we might call an enigma. That's a word we don't use very often, but I think it's a good word to translate hevel. An enigma or frustratingly mysterious, or as Jason DeRoshi, one of my Old Testament professors says, unfathomable. He says this about hevel. When the preacher asserted that all in creation is hevel, I believe he meant that nothing in the universe, this side of eternity, was fully understandable, whether bad or good. The point is not that truth is unknowable or unintelligible, but that reality is ultimately unfathomable. 
which fits, if you think about it, with our finiteness as creatures, right? We are not God. And therefore, all that we perceive under the sun in the ruins of Eden is ultimately hevel. Frustratingly mysterious because it doesn't work as we expect it to. Our bodies were created to live in Eden and be in the creation, enjoying God's good gifts, and yet we've broken it. And so all becomes hevel, hevel, all is hevel. All is frustratingly mysterious. For the sake of not being super annoying, we will use the ESV's vanity, most likely. Because it'll get old to say hevel every time and confuse you guys. But remember that this word is getting at so much more than meaningless. It's getting at the enigma of living life under the sun. It is confusing. It is, like the preacher says, like striving after wind. Look at Ecclesiastes 1.14. He says, I've seen everything that is done under the sun. Everything that is done under the sun, and behold... All is vanity. All is hevel. And striving after wind. He repeats this phrase along with all is vanity seven times in the book. Striving after wind. Striving after wind. Striving after wind. And this word, the striving after wind, again appears only here in Ecclesiastes and shares a root with one other word in this book. And that's with The narrator's conclusions in chapter 12, verse 12, verse 11, excuse me. He says that the words of the wise are like goads, that they are given by one shepherd. The striving after the wind shares this same meaning with this one shepherd phrase. See, all through the book, the preacher wants us to know that as we try to search for meaning under the sun, it is like trying to shepherd the wind. Trying to control and direct the wind, as you can imagine, if you've tried, is frustratingly mysterious. We have some mastery over the wind now. You can take and grab it in a sail, but you can't make it come, right? If the wind doesn't come and you're sailing, you're stuck out there baking on the ocean. It is frustratingly mysterious to try to shepherd the wind. And the preacher wants us to see that, so we're primed to see and have our attention drawn to this one shepherd at the end of the book. The preacher wants us to see that all is hevel under the sun. All is frustratingly mysterious under the sun because it drives... To what he concludes. Look in chapter 3 verse 11. This isn't the only time he concludes this. But this is one of the easiest to see. Chapter 3 verse 11. Through verse 13. The preacher says this. Verse 11. He. God. Has made everything beautiful in its time. Also he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Notice there's something in our hearts that's frustratingly mysterious about life. Because God has put eternity in there. But he's not given us the ability to know the beginning and the end. 
So what does he conclude? Verse 12, I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. The preacher wants to free us from the illusion that the gain we seek will be found in shepherding the wind, trying to control the frustratingly mysterious circumstances of life, trying to find gain in created things like our first parents did. He's trying to free us from that illusion so that we will be freed to receive as a gift what God has given. These things that he says, there's nothing better than to be joyful, to do good, to eat, to drink, to take pleasure in toil, to take pleasure in work that God's given us. This is God's gift to man. The preacher wants us to be able to receive and enjoy the gift of life. Living wisely under the sun is being freed to do just that. And the narrator says the way we do that and maintain that is by fearing God and keeping his commandments. In other words, the message of Ecclesiastes is fear God and enjoy your cheeseburger. That's really it. That's what he's given us to do. In this world, if you try to move beyond that and shepherd the wind, you will experience hevel. That's the preacher's message. Now, you might be wondering, and you'd be right to wonder, in a message like, fear God and enjoy your cheeseburger, where's Jesus? This is the right question. When our kids were little, one of them was talking to us about dinosaurs. I think it was Malachi. We were talking about dinosaurs, and Malachi asked a question like, who discovered dinosaurs, or maybe even who created dinosaurs? And one of the girls, I think it was Ella, walked by and said, probably Jesus. And it was great. That's a perfect answer. You want to train that impulse into your kids and have that impulse in yourself that the answer is probably Jesus. Right? And if you have that impulse about Ecclesiastes that, hey, preacher, I think what you're actually looking for is Jesus, that's a good impulse. That's a right impulse. But friends, I want us to be careful as we listen to the preacher's message. What can happen on this side of the cross is we can be so quick to jump to probably Jesus that we don't adequately wrestle through the perplexities of life, the hevel of life under the sun, the frustratingly mysterious nature of this beautiful but broken world. And Ecclesiastes is going to take us there by the long route so that we learn patience in getting to Jesus. But we will get to Jesus. We will be preaching Ecclesiastes from the perspective of those who live this side of the cross. So Jesus will be there. But the path to Jesus takes work. The preacher says, or the narrator says, excuse me, that the words of the wise are like goads, prods, cattle prods, to push us in the direction we need to go. The words of the preacher are prodding us in the direction we need to go. That's a direction that's given to us, as the the narrator says, by one shepherd. That's prodding us away from shepherding the wind 
and towards the one true shepherd who has given us all the gain we could ever want. See, the shepherd, God, shepherds the wind. We can't shepherd the wind. We can't, we can't possibly control life's frustrating mysteries. But God himself controls all of time and all of history. He's able to shepherd the wind directly where he wants it to go. And he's able to shepherd us exactly where he wants us to be. So that we can come to know true and lasting gain in his son, Jesus. The shepherd, the one shepherd that has given these wise words in Ecclesiastes is prodding his people towards something more than finding gain on this earth. Blaise Pascal in his Penzies puts it this way, Ecclesiastes shows that man without God is totally ignorant and unescapably unhappy. And you know how Ecclesiastes does it? He says this. He says, Who indeed would think himself unhappy not to be king except the one who had been dispossessed? In other words, you wouldn't miss being king unless you'd been king, right? Or who would think himself unhappy if he had only one mouth? And who would not if he had only one eye? In other words, you're not unhappy that you don't have more than one mouth. But you would be unhappy if one of your eyes got poked out. Right? Or he says this. It has probably never occurred to anyone to be distressed at not having three eyes. But those who have none are inconsolable. You don't miss not having three eyes. Because you never had three eyes. But you miss Eden because you were created to live there. That's the strategy of the preacher to drive us towards Jesus is to take life and inspect how many ways we seek to find gain and how that gain is not found because we were created for different gain. We were created for the gain that only comes to us through Christ Jesus. And so this words of the wise of the preacher are goading us towards the cross, towards The cross and resurrection where true gain is found, where all of our unanswered questions and frustrating mysteries of living life under the sun are answered in the life given to us by the sun, by his perfect sacrifice to reconcile us to his father, to bring us the promise of eternal life, to free us from the self-destructive suicidal slavery to sin that we live in. To free us to enjoy the gift of life. And to be assured, ultimately, that God will make everything beautiful in his time. And so, friends, as we look through Ecclesiastes, we'll see that message over and over again. And Lord willing, our hearts will be goaded towards Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you have given us this book to prod us and poke us towards Jesus in ways that we don't even know we need sometimes, in ways that we can't even anticipate in many ways, because we are not the one true shepherd, but you are. And so I pray that what we've seen and talked about today would would reverberate in our hearts throughout this week. As we meditate on these things and as we think about this book and read through this book and as we go through this series, would you help us 
to be see clearly and be freed from the temptation to seek gain in this world to seek gain in the creation that you have made and would you solidify and strengthen our hearts to be satisfied in the gain that comes through the son that's only in christ pray that you do this by your spirit amen